Welcome to the Bay Area Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to make passionate, maturing followers of Jesus from here to the nations. We hope you will be changed by this message and invite you to visit us in the greater Annapolis area. If you would like to learn more about our church and ministries, please visit our website at bayareacc.org. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday to you. Good to see you. It's been a little bit since I've been up here. We had some fun in Odenton at Christmas, though. That was cool. Well, we're going to kick off a new series that's actually going to take us all the way to Easter, entitled He Changed Everything, The Life of Jesus, talking about the people he met, the things that he did, and the way that he changes things. But before we jump in, it's been a while, so let me give you a quick update. Just to tell you where I've been, what we've been up to. We've been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff with Grace Bomb. So a couple of things, you know, a couple of highlights for you just to let you into our world. Uh, one is we've really solidified the vision of Grace Bomb being a discipleship tool for churches. We're not even marketing yet, but we've had churches reaching out, and we're launching, even today, coast-to-coast. Coast. Uh, we haven't really officially started yet. In fact, probably right now there's a, there's a church in San Francisco kicking off a seven-week Grace Bomb sermon series Guess what the name of it is? Grace Bomb. No, uh, no, the name of the church. That'd be awesome, Grace Bomb. Uh, Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So that's kind of funny. We uh, we have a we're developing a mobile app that actually when we take when we go to churches with Grace Bomb, we can deliver them sermon notes and study guides, uh, ways to share stories, get cards, and that sort of thing. And finally, real big answered prayer is we officially got an offer from a major publisher to partner with us to put out the Grace Bomb book. So what that means is a lot of work. Yeah, you can. That's an awesome thing. What that means is I got a lot of work to do. 2020, and then 2021, we're about to get lit. It's going to be great. Uh, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to pray for our time. We're going to jump into a really fun, short passage from the Gospel of John. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pause here to say thank you for, bring, for bringing us from all walks of life. I pray that wherever we might find ourselves today, we would take one step closer to you. And that you change us from the inside out as we sit under the authority of your good, helpful, and practical word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, do your thing in our lives. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So it is New Year's week. We've, had a, we've actually had a good Christmas run. The kids have been healthy. New Year's Day was especially fun for us. In the morning, we went to visit my new nephew. My sister had a baby boy, and so that was cool. And then we spent the afternoon. We went to visit uh, Kristen's brother. And so when we got to the house, Matt had this mini bike sitting outside. Here's a picture of said mini bike. This is Ava on it, getting ready to take a lap around the yard. And the thing's got no suspension. The suspension is a, is a really cushy seat, but it's got big tires and just a lot of fun to kind of trail, you know, just tear through the woods. But when I got there, Matt said, there's the bike, there's the trail, time trial, go. And he said, here's the thing. My buddy put in a three minute. I got it done in two minutes and 30 seconds. What do you got? And I think when I first got there, Matt sort of told me where the trail was, gave me a quick lay of the land. And I had a general idea. There were some faint markings here and there. But I went in. And so you know me and bikes. I got on it. I hopped on it. And I hit it. And I'm into the woods. And it's probably seven minutes later. I don't even know where I'm at. I'm in some guy's backyard with these big jumps. I don't even know how to get back to the, the house again. 
But finally, it probably was 10 minutes, and I got back. I was like, Matt, don't count this on the time trial. But I couldn't tell where I was back there to even get back and be a legitimate part of this competition. So Matt said, hey, no problem, no worries. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk the trail, but this time we're going to take a spray paint can of bright orange spray paint. And we're going to go mark trees. And so this time we walk the course, we mark the trees, we end up in some guy's backyard. He's very cool with us marking these trees in his backyard. And I tell you what, though, the second run, my official run, which, by the way, your boy put up a 156. <laughs> the official run was completely different. You know why? Because the signs changed everything. You see, it wasn't so much that one tree was marked, but there were several trees marked. And when you stand back and I could see the signs, I actually saw something bigger than the signs. I saw the course. I saw the ride. That's what signs are intended to do. Not that we would marvel over the particular sign, but we would take a step back and say, what is this sign pointing to? It's probably something bigger. And just so, you know, in case... That doesn't make sense, but I hope it does. I illustrated this on the iPad. And so this is the trail at first. And it's pretty indistinguishable, just a bunch of trees. But then we walked it through and we made our markings. We made these arrows and dots through. And then when you actually stepped back, you could see the trail. You could see the course. You could see the, see the way in, see the way out, understand where you're going and how to get back. That's the difference signs make. I bring this up because today we're going to talk about the signs of Jesus. In particular, his first sign that we see in John chapter 2. It's a very popular sign, by the way. All of you guys are pretty much going to know this story. Watch. I'm going to test you. This is the story of when Jesus changed water into yeah, so you get it. It's familiar. It's popular. It's his first one. But what is the point of Jesus turning water into wine? Does it point to something else? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. And then we're going to end up at the place asking, what in the world does that have to do with us today in 2020? So with that said, do I have your permission to jump in? I'm going to do it anyway. So thanks for the couple of you gave me that permission. And let me say this for you Bible nerds out there of how I'm approaching this text. We're looking at 12 verses from John chapter 2. Typically when you see a miracle in the Gospels, especially in John, Jesus has a teaching discourse in association with the miracle. So he does a miracle and then he kind of explains what it was all about. This is not the case for turning water into wine. There's no teaching discourse here. And, and because of that, we apply some sanctified imagination of sort of what this is pointing to, but at the same time, we apply some sanctified restraint. And so I'm going to try to stay within the context here of this particular sign. And also something to keep in mind, when we talk about a gospel, we're talking about John. He was the beloved disciple. He wrote this thing before he died. He's an eyewitness to the events. And so John's gospel is unique because he shares from a perspective of, I was close to these things, and I've seen these things and I have insights and details that perhaps even the other gospel writers didn't have because they perhaps had to get their account by a secondhand interview, but I'm seeing these things with my own eyes. And so with those two things in mind, we jump in to verses one and two. Here we go. On the third day, we read, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, there's a couple different Canas in the Bible. This one is in the region of Galilee. You might think, what, where is that in general? Well, on this very teeny map that I have up here, I uh, just want you to see where this place is. I circled Cana of Galilee. It's in the northern region. This would be closer to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. This would sort of be his, where he started out doing his ministry. I underlined that tiny little word on the bottom that you can't see because that's the vicinity of Jerusalem. So that's the area, geographically speaking, of the opposition, the greatest opposition of Jesus. So just so you can see on a map where these things are happening. Another cultural point that's really important to these couple of verses is that Jewish weddings were a little bit different than ours. A Jewish engagement or betrothal lasted a long time, and it took a while. It's like they were sort of officially married, but they hadn't consummated the marriage yet. But once they consummate the marriage, then it's about a week-long party that ensues. And it was a very big deal, and it was upon the responsibility of the groom's family to provide all the provisions, the food, wine, eating, drinking, for that thing all the way until the last day. It was a very big deal. So Jesus and his disciples were there. Now before I move on to the next verse, I want to bring up this trail picture because I want to give you some insights about Jesus as we walk through this trail leading up to his miracle here. Number one, just take note of this first little insight on the trail, this little divot to watch out for. Jesus wants to be with people. He wasn't a figure like John the Baptist who hung out in the woods and avoided people and was always prophetically yelling at, at folks. Jesus showed up to the party. He got the invitation. He showed up to the party. He wanted to be with people. Jesus was a people person. I can tend to want to avoid people. If I get invitations to your party, I feel like I'm going to consider that until the RSVP expires. I just never decided and that's just how it's going to go. So it's not that I didn't want to come. It's I forgot to RSVP. What I'm saying is Jesus wants to be with people. Tuck that away in the back of your mind. Now in verse 3, the drama starts to unfold in verse 3. The wine, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, if we surveyed the room, there's probably going to be some different reactions from people when you run out of something at a party. For instance, if we have people over and we have a big dish or a plate of something and we run out, I'm thinking they liked it. Two thumbs up, less to clean up, no leftovers. Kristen sees a big empty platter and she's like, no, we didn't have enough. And she is sweating the fact that we didn't have enough. What if they wanted more? We couldn't handle it. Well, that was more of the vibe in this situation. And it's a bigger deal than just we think, because in that culture, there were two, there were two components of this. Number one, that family, if they would have run out of provisions for this feast, would have been shamed in the community. This was a shaming culture. It was a small town. And if you can't do what the expectation was, everybody's going to hear about it and know about it. And so there was, there was a real threat of shame for this family if this news broke. And secondly, this one is completely foreign to us. However, in the ancient Near East, there are documents that show if, if you did not provide the sustenance and provisions that were expected in a feast like this, if you failed to provide, you could actually be legally liable. 
Now, that's completely foreign to us, but that was the case back then. And so what's at stake here is shame on the family and guilt, perhaps, like take-it-to-court kind of guilt for the family. And somehow, Mary was involved in the catering. We don't know how. Maybe she was a friend of the bridegroom. Maybe she was a relative. Maybe it was a cousin getting married. But she has the inside scoop that they just ran out of wine, and she knows if this news breaks, it's not going to be good for this family. There's shame and there's guilt. And what does she do? She goes to Jesus. Now, we don't hear much about Joseph. You know, Joseph and Mary from Christmas last week, okay? We don't hear much about Joseph in the Gospels. After, you know, the Christmas narrative, he kind of drops off. So the assumption is he he's might be dead at this point. Mary would be a widow. So that would make Jesus, the firstborn son, the automatic go-to for resources, for provision, for providing for the family, and for everything. And so it's, it's a no-brainer that she's just going to go to the person that she would go to when there's an issue or when there's a problem. Side note, it's probably always a good idea to go to Jesus when there's a problem. It's not the point. It's not the moral of the story. But it is a good point within the story. They have no wine, and we can learn something from Mary. And the little insight on the course here about Jesus is this one. I don't have time to unpack it, but Jesus has resources to help with shame and guilt. It's got some deeper spiritual roots there that we might be able to address in a little bit. But he has uh, answers for some of not only our problems of I ran out of wine, but also some of our deeper heart problems that we may need uh, to deal with at some point. Now, here's the thing in the story. We know, because we've heard the miracle, we know Jesus is going to do the miracle anyway. We know he changes water into wine, right? It's in the story. But look at what he says after Mary comes to him and says they have no wine. He says this in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, fellas, I don't know about you. But if I go to Kristen and I start the conversation with woman, <laughs> the rest of that combo is probably not going to be appropriate for church speak. <laughs> but Jesus, being a mindful and masterful teacher, I believe he's choosing his words carefully. And one thing to note is when he says woman, he doesn't say mother, he doesn't say Mary, he says woman, he's not being disrespectful. And so we might think, oh, he's stiff-arming her, he's being disrespectful. He's not, and I can say that with confidence because the same word in the Greek is used another time in John's gospel. It's used when Jesus is on the cross, and he looks down, and he sees his mother, and he sees John, the disciple, and he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. So he makes provision for Mary on the cross. He uses that same word. So he's concerned, but he's signaling something. And what he's signaling is, don't bring me into this right now and don't assume that I'm going to reveal my glory at this point. My hour has not yet come. We know from John's gospel that when Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about the very moment that he was born to exist here on earth in the first place. He's talking about the hour of his death. He's talking about the hour where he's going to hang on the cross and atone for the sin of the world. The hour of his death, burial, and resurrection when he fully and finally displays the perfect love and the perfect justice of God on the cross. That was the reason he was born. And he says, listen, I've been setting up this shot for 30 years. Don't call me into action now because <laughs> I got my sight set on something big. In fact, more than 30 years, this plan's been in the making since Genesis 3.15 when there was a promise that a son was going to be born of a woman who was going to crush 
the head of evil. So this has been in the making for a long time, and Jesus said, I'm engaging in my mission. And he's also saying to his mother, don't presume just because we're family that I'm going to prioritize anything over my father's will. In other words, this little insight into the trail, Jesus is driven by his heavenly father's will. And there is a clear shift here in the family dynamic that Jesus, who has lived as son of Mary for 30 years, is now identifying as son of man, who came on a mission to be a sacrificial atonement for the sin of the world. And even from the earliest stages of his ministry, he has his sights set on Calvary. So he goes deep here in this little, you know, comeback to Mary. But here's the thing. Mary doesn't have the rest of John's gospel. She hasn't read the end of the story. She doesn't automatically know what his hour is. She got the thing from the angels. She knew there was a virgin birth. She was a part of all that, but she's not uh, probably completely aware of what is exactly is going to be happening when it comes to Jesus' hour. And so, less now probably as a mom asking for a favor and more as a woman coming to Jesus as a believer, she's trusting that he's going to be able to figure out the problem, which is why she turns to the servants and says, well, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> That's the next verse in John chapter 2. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And we might think, because, you know, we're familiar with Bible stuff, we might think uh, Mary was just waiting for the miracle to happen. But I don't necessarily think Mary was thinking the miracle was going to happen. Because John tells us that this was the first of the signs, meaning that this was Jesus' first miraculous, supernatural, bending laws of nature thing that he did. And that means... Although there's some other apocryphal writing about when Jesus was a kid, he made like a Play-Doh thing and brought it to life. Those things are not in the, in the canonized scripture. They're kind of universally recognized as apocryphal writing. This means that it's not like Jesus grew up just doing miracles all the time. You know, how unfair would that be? Jesus like, you want to race me? You know, you never take that. You never take that bet because he's going to teleport himself to the end. It's like you cheater, man. But he never exercised his power. He never displayed his glory. This was the first. And so she was maybe thinking, maybe he's going to send three of his disciples down to the next town to go bring some wine back. I don't know what she was thinking, but it might not have been miracle. But he's about to do a miracle. And he's about to choose to do a miracle in a specific way, which is also highly interesting. This is what the next two verses say. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So they weren't small things. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. These would have been big stone containers meant for ceremonial washing and cleansing. You know, like when you watch ER or scrubs and they, they're like having their conversations and stuff right before the surgery and they're in there and they're scrubbing in. Any doctors in here that have to scrub in? Am I doing it right? If you are, this is what I learned on TV. Well, it's like that. They, the Jews would have these rituals where they would scrub in and out of feasts and festivals, but they had a spiritual mindset about it, thinking that this is making me clean. This is making me pure. This is making me right before God. 
It was a bathing vessel. And now Jesus is going to use it as an instrument of drinking on some level. And just that picture is a little bit odd when you blend those things. I have a picture in my mind, actually. Um, well, before I share that, let me just show you this. This was interesting because in researching this week, there is an archaeological dig in the region of Galilee, which actually may have been around Cana, where they're actually excavating the different um, phases of manufacturing these stone water jars. And they believe this one to be about a 2,000-year-old uh, site, th this dig. And they, that's a piece of one of the stone jars that they have found like in their, different, in their various iterations of production. And the Jews chose the stone over the earthenware because they considered it clean. But at any rate, it was you know, a vessel for cleansing not unlike our bathtub. So here's a weird little picture of this. A few, you know, about a couple months ago, we did a kitchen reno where we really just like, we relocated the kitchen and the sink and all the plumbing. And when we did that, you know, we got kids and we make dishes on the daily and they're dirty and nasty. Making dishes, making a mess, no sink, nowhere to do your dishes. What do you do? You take them up to the bathtub. That's what you do. So a couple weeks, just common sense, when you would go into our bathroom, the main one that we all share, bathtub, dishes. It is an odd sight to see, but great for multitasking, if you get what I'm saying. Max, Max, finish washing your hair and pass me a plate. <laughs> Just kidding. We would never do that in the tub. The shower was much easier. It may or may not be true. But anyway, we have a kitchen again. But the point of all this is to say that Jesus took the thing that the Jews thought was going to make them clean, and he made it new. He used it in a different way. When is another time in the Bible that wine played a significant role in a story? Well, it was the upper room discourse, wasn't it? Later on in John. That's where we get the Lord's Supper, communion from. He broke bread, gave it to him. This is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup. What was it? It was wine. And he raised it and he said, this is my blood shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. He lifted it up. As often as you drink this, remember me. And it's almost, using our sanctified imagination here, it's almost as if Jesus is tipping his hat to the fact that wine is going to once again play a role in making people clean. His blood that removes sin as the perfect human sacrifice to deal with a human problem of sin before a holy God. You know, that's why Jesus had to be a person and not like a lamb, like a real lamb or an animal. You know, the Bible tells us that it was never going to be an animal that could, that could deal with a human problem. So we had to have a human being. And so the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And this little insight on the trail, I would label this way. Jesus fills the old law with new life. Jesus is the ultimate purifier. So this is all kind of just introduction leading up to the last couple of verses here, which are the actual miracle itself. Because this thing is about signs, and we're talking about signs, and so far we've just been telling a story. But now we actually get to see the sign. And there's not a whole lot of scientific detail. We don't see a metamorphosis or a chemical change or transaction. We just get this, this matter-of-fact statement of what happened. And here it is, verse 8. And he said to them, Now draw out some, now draw some out. After, you know, you fill it up to the brim, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast, Jesus said. So they took it. 
And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, there it is, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So what just happened in the story? Well, the MC or the magistrate or the, you know, the main caterer, he's out there, and the servants bring the next batch of wine, and it's legit Jesus brand wine. Like, it's no kidding way better than what they had in the beginning. And not that I'm a like wine connoisseur or anything like that. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. At my house, we have like the 1988 Glen Burnet. But yeah, it's a good one, right? It's from, I'm, because I'm from Glen Burnet, it ties it in. Not that I'm a wine aficionado, but what the master of the ceremonies is saying is, Typically at these parties, you're going to bring your best wine first. And then, actually, in the Greek language, it's speaking to this. When the people get tipsy, you bring out the junk wine because they're not going to tell. They won't be able to tell. But the MC says, you've saved the best to last, which is pointing to a couple things. One, the miracle which we're going to get to. But first, Jesus provides for this family. He spares them of their shame, spares them of perhaps even legal liability. And not only does he provide, he provides for them lavishly. He hooks them up with something better than they had wanted in the first place. And We'll mark that here on the trail to watch out for. Jesus provides lavishly. Now, we got to keep it real for a second here. Because I know that some of you guys might be waiting in some way for God to provide for you. Maybe it's a relational thing or a job thing or a family thing or a friend thing. But you've kind of been hoping that something comes through and it hasn't come through. And you're like, to me, bro, that thing on the screen is just words on a screen. That's meaningless because Jesus hasn't provided anything. Can I just submit this to you? That perhaps his delaying is not his withholding. Because for half of us, if we actually got what we wanted, when we wanted it, we wouldn't be ready for it. And it's in the waiting and in the longing and in the wondering is, that, is the time that our character is actually becoming ready to receive when he actually moves a mountain on our behalf. And so maybe you're here today and you need a mountain moved. And just because it doesn't seem to be moving does not mean that Jesus is not working. So just hang on to that. And the last little nugget on the trail, and really the, the sign proper, is just the calling out the obvious thing that happened in this text, which is this. Jesus just bent or broke natural law. Let's just call it what it is. You can't just take H2O and snap your fingers and make it turn into wine. That's crazy talk. It, I know it doesn't happen like that, even though I don't make wine, but I know you need grapes and I know you need time. And if it's going to be good wine, you need more time. And can we just be honest and admit that this is a bit crazy? This sign is crazy talk, you church people. Not only this sign, but the others that John is going to go on to talk about. Walking on water, feeding 5,000 people with a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. Healing the blind, the lame are walking again. People being restored to sight. Dead people are coming back to life. The accounts here are supernatural accounts of God 
busting up the very laws that he put forth to govern our universe. That's what this sign is. And I hear you if you say, Pat, that's crazy, man. And I will, I will admit to you, it sounds crazy. But consider this. It's also crazy that we are self-conscious beings with a moral compass, living on a planet that's spinning 1,000 miles per hour, which, by the way, is perfectly suited for life against all mathematical probabilities that our existence would have just happened by chance, and add to that the last 100 years of scientific discovery by which we see a universe that had a beginning point and is governed by impeccably precise laws that show order, consistency, complexity, and design, even down to the very language embedded in the building blocks of life, our DNA, friends, the fact that we are even here today is a miracle. So yes, I believe supernatural things have occurred. And I believe God can bend his own natural laws he sees fit making it completely reasonable to believe that this miracle is historical fact, not fiction. And it was a sign for them then, and it is a sign for us today. But to what end? Because as we've already established, it's not just about the tree with the arrow in the woods. It's about the thing that the tree in the, with the arrow in the woods is pointing to. What are the signs pointing to? That's the question. Well, we have the answer in verse 11. Verse 11, it's the end of our passage here, says this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana, in Galilee. And here it is. Manifested his glory. And what happens when that happens? His disciples believed in him. Let's leave that up just for a second, because this is a freaky little term. Manifest his glory. You do not use that in polite conversation. What this is saying is, when Jesus does a sign or a miracle, and he bends or breaks his natural law, it's as if he's peeling back a spiritual curtain to a dimension that is unseen and just ever so eking out glory. Glory as of the one and only begotten Son. This is why earlier John starts his gospel with this one line in it in John 1.14 when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning the second member of the triune Godhead took on flesh at the incarnation, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The sign was given to reveal to other human beings that Jesus was divine, the son of God. That he is gloriously God. And if that's true, Let's just say for a minute, let's just say that's true. The only response to when Jesus reveals his glory is faith. Like, all right, I, I trust that. I'll follow you. <laughs> if that happened, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my eggs in your basket. That's the response. That's what happened with the disciples. They believed not about him, 
They didn't believe above him, didn't believe for him, didn't believe around him. They believed in him. In this sign, Jesus is revealing his identity, his divinity. And in fact, I'll end with this verse here. In fact, the whole point of the rest of John's gospel, what I love about the Bible is this. These Bible authors, they just tell you exactly what they're thinking. And they pull no punches. And it's so just straightforward and in your face. So at the end of John's gospel, he writes, he literally writes these words. Now, he says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, meaning signs I'm not even telling you about. But the ones I am telling you about are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So let's just put it a different way here for a second. We're in this series, He Changed Everything. The topic is signs. That's where we are. How do signs change everything? Here's how the signs of Jesus change everything. Because they take the guessing work out of who God is. And for so many people today, we're, we're driving around on a mini bike in the woods, wondering, is this the way in? Is this the way out? This kind of looks good. That felt good. That way might work. Maybe I'll go to the left. Maybe I'll go to the right. Is there a purpose to this? Is there a plan? Why am I here? What is the deal? Should I have hope? I mean, what happens when I die? Is heaven real? What's the deal? So many questions people have, and it's like they're walking around in the woods, and all of a sudden come signs. Signs to tell you the way. The way in, the way out, and what you're even doing on the trail in the first place. The signs of Jesus take the guesswork out of who God is, friends. It's good news for us. Now, maybe you're here, maybe you're wandering in the woods a little bit today. You're like, I hear you, I don't really know. Sounds interesting. I'm not one of those disciples yet. I'm not really believing. Let me just put this before you. A, super stoked that you're here. B, check out these other signs and dig into them and read about them historically and critically and get commentaries and don't just seek biblical sources, but find out if Jesus existed outside of biblical sources and find him in the Roman writings and find him in the Jewish writings and really put your mind to the critical application of is this actually true? See what happens. I would commend you that that might be your top priority in 2020 if you find yourself in the woods not quite sure of the way. Now, for a lot of you other guys, you're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, Pat. Thanks for that. But uh, I think he did change water into wine. So two thumbs up. <laughs> well, there's application for all of us because if Jesus is God, very practically, that means a couple of things. A couple of things that we could be doing that we could be walking into in 2020. Number one is this. If Jesus really is God, we can talk to him. That means you can actually pray to the creator of the universe and it goes somewhere. It's not like you're just hanging out talking to air and it evaporates and you feel good about yourself. That there is a receiver on the other end that is the creator who showed up, who, by the way, wants to be with people. 
so we can talk to him. Some of you guys might need to make a plan to talk to God. You might need to set aside time to pray. Other of you guys, you just need to do it more throughout your day. Like I'm driving, I get cut off, there's a problem, there's an issue, I go to Jesus and I talk to him. He wants to hear from you. And he doesn't care how long it's been since you dialed, he will pick up on the other end. Talking to him is one thing. Another thing is learning from him. Maybe this is a, a step that we might need to take in 2020 because there are so many different uh, things that we can fill our mind with between social media and movies and entertainment and even things that have to do with work, good things, life-giving things, but there is nothing I contend better than what Jesus has to say about life. And we can learn from Jesus. We can learn from Jesus through his word, through the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, but you have a smartphone, you have like 100 Bibles. Because there's at least 100 different translations on the Bible app. And if you find the King James Version difficult to read, well, join the rest of the world. And you get the NIV. You get another translation. That does not mean that it's changing what the Bible is saying. It means it's, it's using our language from 2020, and it's, it's using Greek and Hebrew tools to directly take it from the Greek in the Hebrew into our language. That's what King James did. He just took Greek and Hebrew, and he made it into his Old English. But now we're beyond that, and we can say, hey, we have good tools of Greek and Hebrew, and we can actually understand intelligibly what the Bible says. For a long time, over the medieval period, nobody had access to that because half the people on the planet couldn't read. Dark ages. I think that's when it was. The third thing is probably the hardest, actually. Talking to him, okay, I can try that. I can be out doing my thing, throwing up to Jesus. I can learn what he has to say, you know, some principles. He's a good teacher. If anything else, let me say this. Jesus is the best teacher ever. He uses stories. He drops these awesome nuggets of truth that kind of explode in your mind later on. It's great. But here's the kicker. To do what he says is a completely different ball game. <laughs> And I know this is from experience because I got to take time and read this Bible. And then I'd be like, man, you know, I got to do what Jesus says. Can we just acknowledge how difficult this is? I mean, Jesus' teachings are so helpful and life-giving, so inspirational, and even so simple. Love your neighbor. All right, cool. That sounds so easy until you try to do it. Because half the time I'm trying to avoid my neighbors because I'm introverted and don't feel like talking. It's so hard to put these things into practice, but maybe there's something he told us to do that we might be called to take a step of faith and to put that into practice. If he is God, let me say this. If Jesus is God and he tells you to do something that's countercultural or other people might think is dumb or you might be labeled a weirdo or church freak or whatever, who knows, whatever the connotations might be. But if you do what he says, you're going to have a smile on your face ear to ear because you just obeyed the God of the universe who formed the stars into existence, who invented fun. God invented fun. And to do what he says is going to lead you down a path of fulfillment. Maybe not instant happiness. Well, I'm not saying that if you start doing what Jesus says, your life is going to be puppies and rainbows. I'm not saying that you're going to be problem free. I'm not that saying that you're going to suffer from, not suffer from anxiety or depression or addiction or other varieties of things that afflict all of us. I'm not saying that. 
But I'm saying, if you walk with him through those things, you will have joy regardless of those circumstances. That's the promise. Jesus doesn't promise a cushy life. He just promises to be with you in the fire, just like we sung about. And the final one I'll leave with you is this one, because I don't want to miss this. Jesus comes to the party. He wants to be with us. Emmanuel means God with us. There's a power in that word, with. And I would submit this to you. If Jesus is really God, then enjoy him. Enjoy him. We sort of have this false conception as Americans, especially in a, in a region like this. We are well-to-do. We have disposable income. And we tend to think along these lines. Well, it's going to be my spouse that's going to give me the ultimate happiness. Right? You're going to be let down real quick. Sorry, newlyweds. If you're thinking that you're going to have ultimate happiness in a spouse, stop thinking that. If your goal in life is to finally have children, and that's a good God-given, driven goal. And if you think it's going to be my kids that give me the ultimate satisfaction in my life, and, I'll, and it's a blessing to have children. But if you think your kids are going to give you ultimate happiness, <laughs> quote, quote him on that. If you think... If you think raising, rising up to the top ranks in your organization, where you finally make it to the top of the ladder, and you have some status and significance and some security, and the bank account's looking good, and the retirement's set, so much so that you can go jaunt off and have all these amazing experiences and see the world. If you think that is where you're going to find happiness and satisfaction, think again. Because friends, we have been put on this planet for one explicit purpose, and that is to know and to walk with your creator. The signs of Jesus reveal it's him. And you can enjoy him and walk with him and trust him and investigate him and have hard conversations about him and poke and prod him. And he is faithful to be there because he wants to hang out with you. So what is it for you today, perhaps, where you might need to take one small step closer to Jesus if he really is who he claimed to be? Maybe it's one of these four. I just want to pause here, just give you a 30 seconds of silence and maybe one of these will rise to the top. And maybe that one is perhaps one of the things that you might be called to do as you take this next step out into 2020. So give yourself 30 seconds to think about these things.
Well, Heavenly Father, I just want to wrap things up here and pray along with my brothers and sisters. First, just to say thanks. Thanks that you are a God who wants to be with people. Thanks that you have the resources to remove our guilt and our shame. Thank you that you came on a mission to accomplish that very thing, and you were sold out to that mission. Thank you that you are the ultimate purifier, that you make everything new and you have the ability to make things new. Thanks that you provide for us, and you provide for us even more than we ever thought. Thanks even that you displayed your glory in ways that could, if they really happened, have to make us undeniably say, well, I guess that's God. And so would you continue to reveal your truth to us, continue to put those little nudges and signs in our life and as we do, I pray that we'd be spurred on and we have a new hunger and a thirst to talk to you, to learn from you, to do whatever you tell us to do. And with your help, help us to carry those things out. And as we do, we, may we have an amazing, joy-filled ride. We love you. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus today. Amen. You guys have a great week. See you next weekend.